0: hey what's up everybody it's daryl here uh today we are posting the audio from the gee interview that ran in rage cake issue 119 that came out uh, around two years ago the interview itself took place on august 17th 2020 so put yourself back into august of 2020 and all the baggage that that uh comes with um but happy to share this with you uh It was brought to life in a way that it didn't exist previously uh, with the audio help of our friend Matt Miller, who can be reached at the contacts uh, in the show notes. He's available for any mixing and mastering uh, needs you might need, as well as other audio stuff, Uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I think it's quite enjoyable. I also want to mention that, This is the last weekend for our annual donation drive. So that Tim Kerr t-shirt that he graciously illustrated for us will only be available to those who place a donation in the next couple days. Uh, If you're listening to this after January 1st, 2023, ignore that. So for those who may not uh, instantly recall who Guy is, uh, Rites of Spring, One Last Wish... Fugazi. Uh Just a songsmith who has put out so much into the world that is so enjoyable and cherished and we couldn't have been happier to run the interview in the magazine and now uh, are sharing the audio itself. Uh, enjoy. Alright, so do you remember the rap you wrote to try and convince Flavor Flav to start wearing a pedometer rather than a clock?
1: you know that's that that's a good one um no but you know i remember i actually just had this conversation with my friend glenn friedman um who's a punk rock skateboard photographer yeah um, who is my link to public enemy because he shot the incredible public enemy covers for like the first record and uh definitely it takes a nation i mean some of those just really just iconic shots or whatever and he was also a friend of our band and uh I had this, you know, this is this wasn't a Fitbit, this was like the super ancient pedometer technology where you just <laughs> had this thing that would flap on your leg and every time it like went up and down on your leg, it counted that as a step or whatever, so, um, and I, I don't remember where I got it, but it was like this super clunky mechanical pedometer and uh, I sent one up to Glenn and I was like, yo, you gotta get, uh, you gotta get this to flave like, you know, it's not just about what time it is, it's how far you've gone or whatever, and I had this whole rap about that, you know. Um, but I don't i don't know if it ever exchanged hands, and I definitely don't remember ever seeing Flavor in it, but uh, that was my attempt to, uh, my attempt to, I don't know, uh, in a way it was just a sign of total respect, because I had huge respect for a Public Enemy. I mean, even before I was in Fugazi, when uh, I was in a band before that called Happy Go Licky, we were just really, really... Uh, obsessed with Public Enemy and obsessed with these tapes that we used to get sent down from New York um, to Ian at the Discord house, these uh, Red Alert tapes that Glenn would send down of these radio shows um,
0: oh, cool. playing,
1: you know, hip-hop stuff from New York City. And we, you know, we would hear stuff like Schooly Dee from Philadelphia and like all of this kind of early... Uh, grandmaster Flash's the message was really big with everybody then pretty soon after that they had all these other just increasingly more um more extreme like iterations of what hip-hop was at that time you know super minimal super just super heavy tracks and uh i remember Boogie Down Productions, like their first records, Criminal Minded, that stuff. All of those records were really, really big with us in Washington and uh,
0: Is this something that was, Enemy,
1: they were was, oh, go ahead.
0: Is this something that was exclusive to like you guys in Glen or were like punkers trading hip hop tapes all around the country?
1: Well, that's a good question. I'm not really sure about the rest of the country. I mean, um it's just one of those things where I think like by that period of time or I'm talking about nineteen eighty I don't know eighty five eighty six eighty seven right in that that time zone, like hardcore like you know, and it's like from seventy nine to like eighty three was just the most extreme thing you could imagine, and mm-hmm. the most kind of eye you know eye and head expanding phenomenon that kind of was like this brush fire that went across the country. And then after that like you know it kind of it started to become kind of codified and understood and and then pretty quickly after that suddenly there was this major hip-hop explosion and I felt like there was a lot of commonalities between the two things because both of them were not being you know nurtured or understood by the larger kind of commercial industry
0: right
1: it just was this grassroots explosion that was happening and 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 one of the big differences, I think, is technology has a lot to do with with hip-hop coming up, like, you know, turntables and sampling and all those kind of things, like started to feed into kind of the birth of this new art form or whatever. But I remember very distinctly um, in Washington, we'd be hanging out in Georgetown, it's like where all the punks used to hang out at that time, and seeing very early uh, examples of breakdancing. There was this crew that used to, like, lay down cardboard in this bank parking lot and start, you know poppin'. I think they were called the electric pop or something like that and they would do poppin and breakdancing and stuff. And I just remember being like, Holy fuck, what is this? What like, what it really made an effect on me and then going up to New York for the first time and seeing the same thing happening up there with people like laying cardboard out in the parks and doing these crazy breakdance battles. And just you just felt like something underground was brewing there. And in DC you also had this uh music form called Go Go, which was kind of the the main underground black music of the city, which kinda came out of R and B but it was super percussion driven, um really, really long, extended jams like go on for hours and call right. and response between the crowd and the bands and it wasn't hip hop, it was this you know, it was you know, and kids would we'd see this band Junkyard Band playing in the streets you know gone, you know plastic buckets and percussion and stuff and see them doing their thing and that had a kind of was was mind-boggling and like so there was a lot of affinity between the kids in the punk scene at least in in the r punk scene and and the go-go scene like in terms of just being impressed by it and trying to find the records and the live tapes that were being sold on the street so there was just all these kind of underground cultures that were all sort of in the mix um and I mean, that's the thing about DC and I think probably any punk scene is it was never as monolithic as it might have appeared from the outside, where there was all these kind of cross-pollinating influences. I mean, in DC, you had metal bands like The Obsessed, who were very important to a lot of people. You had um, certainly at the Go-Go scene, uh, Trouble Funk, all those bands, uh, definitely Junkyard, huge, Rare Essence, big bands for us. Um, and then the hip-hop thing. So, like, Public Enemy, I mean, particularly them, I think the first record, like, I was, like, just, like, oh, this is, it just gave you chills. It seems so, like, so revolutionary and so, like, unapologetic and intense. Confrontational. And then Rebel Without a Pause, I mean, the, yeah, confrontational. And then the Rebel Without a Pause thing came out. And just the sonic quality of it, we were just, you know, it just felt like the bar was being raised in terms of the intensity of what music could be, and a lot of other stuff started to seem pretty tame, you know, and yeah. and there's also something really cool about Public Enemies, the, the, it, you know, now it really feels like they were building, like, you know, some version of a Marvel universe where there was just all these characters within the band, and, you know, you had, you know, the security of the first world, you had Flavor, and you had Chuck D, and all this kind of different you know, it seemed like all these different perspectives within one group, different voices, different, there was humor, but also extreme, super serious politics, but also this incredibly, you know, anarchic flavor thing. So all of that was impressive to us, you know, so the Um, the pedometer thing is just like a kind of a goofy anecdote, but it really pointed to a larger kind of sense of affinity with them. I mean, not that, you know, we hung with them or anything like that. We definitely didn't, but we were definitely listening, you know, we were definitely imbibing it.
0: And very early on at that too.
1: Yeah, because we were, we had kind of, uh. We kind of had an inside lane a little bit, just because we knew Glenn, but all, and so he was kind of hipping us to what was happening. And uh, But we're also, it's funny, like I was thinking about this too, because I remember Brendan calling me up, and he was the drummer of Fugabe, yeah. the guy I played with in almost every band I've ever been in. He was like at home watching Run DMC on American Bandstand, and he was like, yo, turn on the TV, and he just turned it on, and Run DMC on American Bandstand was like... What the fuck? It's really hard for people who only think of Run DMC with, like, the, you know, the Aerosmith crossover or whatever. Uh-huh. When they first came out, and their look, and the hats, and their fucking leather jackets, and the and the sneakers, their whole presentation on panstands, we were like, it was like, fuck, this is so heavy. It really was, that was intense. I remember just being like, what is happening? This is so good. And, um... Yeah, so that was all kind of stuff that we were we were listening to along with, you know, of course, all the other DC punk bands and all the other California punk bands and, you know, the we just were we really were we were young and super super interested and we also had the great advantage a lot of us of working in this record store um called Yesterday Today Records which had I mean, to me, more than anything I can think about, it was like going to college every day. I'd go in there, and there were guys who were older than us who had seen the Stooges and the Beatles, and you know, and could tell us these stories about DC music scene from the early '70s, late '60s. That just guys who had some continuity and um, and had like encyclopedic knowledge of all forms of music, and we would just, new stuff coming in, so it was just like, we would sit there, we just were on top of everything, we knew every fucking thing that was going down, it was great.
0: Do you keep up with uh, hip-hop?
1: Now? Um, not Probably not, not so much, I mean, I still listen to it, I don't, I I wouldn't say I'm as, as, as up on anything, any form <laughs> of music now, as I was when I was younger. When I was younger, I really fucking, was on the, on the Pulse beat, but now I would say, I think just the expanse of what's out there and uh, um, and the saturation of it, it's kind of hard for me to keep up so much with stuff. But I still, and I have a lot of, you know, I'm, I get turned on to lots of different things. I mean, I've been working now as a producer with this band, Zylorus White, um, which is a, a Jim White from the band Dirty Three on drums, and Georgios Sailuris, a Cretan lute player from, from Greece, who is uh and they're a duo and that kind of opened up a world of a lot of other different kinds of music and stuff like that that I've started to get into and try to understand. Um and yeah, so there's always pockets of interest that I'm into and, and but I wouldn't say I have uh the same degree of uh I don't know what it is exactly, if it's just like uh accretion of time or if it's uh, just a matter of life being so overwhelming right now when you're young you just it's very hard to uh remember but for me i just felt like every day felt like the equivalent of a of a month now you know you just felt like there was just so much space in my head to fill
0: yeah Um, but now and there's also the desire to just know as much as possible and then at a certain yeah, and point, I think a
1: lot of it had to do with also yeah, being in bands also and wanting to find some way myself to be I just was, you know, I, that was I was so inspired and I just felt like, you know, it just felt like a lightning rod, you know, and just absorbing all this energy.
0: Like uh sometimes I just think about how much music is available to me, available to me via like YouTube or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I listen to like a couple new things and I'm like, oh, "Okay, I'm done." <laughs> like
1: yeah, I do think there's something about that kind of the ease of it. I mean, it's very hard to not I I find I really struggle with trying not to be too critical of you know, the the kind of modern technological setup that's happening now, but I do think there's something about the ease of of access that has worked almost in reverse for a lot of people. Just like it's so easy that it it doesn't have um it makes it it, it it just kind of there's a sense of it being devalued in some way i mean the, i think because it has something to do with mystery i think that there was the thing that really propelled the, I think, the early hardcore scene into that into such a I, I reflect on how it how the way it saturated the entire country and with so little avenues for transmission at that time is because of that because of that thirst and the mystery of it and it would be a long time before you would hear about something and when you could actually get anything substantiated about that thing you'd heard about. Right. So when it came, it was just so, um, it felt so so powerful. I mean, we had, you know, like a Misfit 7-inch would show up and you would listen to it and you would just get these rumors and those rumors would feed all of this, like, misunderstanding of what was really going on and then you know it might even be a year and a half before you actually got to see that band live or to have any idea what they physically look like or what it could possibly be about you know it just was it just it was very funny like um, and it was and and what was cool about it too is like something like black flag like the reason black flag have the legacy they do now is just because of this just utterly bonkers work ethic that they had and that kind of that really informed i think that created like it's so interesting that they formed a template not just for a musical template but like an action template for the way people could work and be and people just were ready to be i don't know just enormous i feel i feel like there was this untapped resource of energy that just was waiting for some avenue and it and it once it happened, man, it just it really took off. It was really, uh, I mean, it was something. I mean, I, I started listening to punk rock music. I don't know, I was probably in sixth grade. Um, yeah. And it took it took many many years for me to to you know get to the point where I could be in a band and actually felt like I could do something serious within a band. But it was there was just this sense of like. I don't I don't know why, but it just was like you wanted to find this like it just was like yeah, it was like uh I don't know, finding a vein under the earth that you could that you tapped into and you just had to you just was a, you became obsessive about it. you had to track that you had to track it.
0: Well it's just like I don't know, for a lot of us it was like the first thing that ever made sense.
1: Yeah. I think for me, I think uh I remember when I was like really young and maybe seventh grade, something like that. And we had a friend in our class get killed by a a drunk driver. Um, And it just was like that moment, like just seeing how clueless the adults were that had to deal with with it in terms of like explaining it to the kids or somehow like shepherding these kids through this like weird – trauma that had happened um yeah i remember just being like they actually don't know shit they're just <laughs> as clueless as we are like i just it was this moment of revelation where i just was like it just felt like a, my, the scales kind of fell off my eyes and i just had this understanding that there wasn't really like some kind of benign knowledgeable over structure or something that was like that knew anything more than we did and i just from that moment on i just started to feel like i just i just didn't whatever kind of respect or kind of interest I had in what teachers had to say or whatever, it all just kind of evaporated. And I felt like kind of freed from feeling like that I needed to somehow fit in or understand that world. It just no longer made any sense to me.
0: Yeah, that's definitely the kind of impetus you need to just start your own world. Yeah. Uh, Here's... This is a much more lighthearted than what we were just talking about. But uh what Beatle are you?
1: Well, I mean I always I mean I I was asked to do this like self portrait for this uh fanzine. Uh-huh. Um they did a they did an article uh I mean they did a whole issue like on on Fugazi and they asked everyone in Fugazi to do a self portrait of themselves. What year is this? And I was just a, Actually, it wasn't that long ago. I can't remember. It was like five years ago, something oh, okay. like that. Um, so, everyone in the band kind of submitted something. And mine was like a photo collage of like Frankenstein's head melded with George Harrison's head. And, um, because in the weird, like when I was really young, I had this like self identification with George Harrison that had no basis in fact, but I just had this really extreme identification with him. Um, and I mean my love of the Beatles was like very, very intensive when I was super young. I right. think like I I don't know, I was like third or fourth grade when I really started to obsess on them and uh um I think I've talked about this before, but just like in a way they kind of I was preserved in this like shell of beatleness until punk rock hit me. Like I just wasn't really interested in anything else besides them until I started hearing punk rock music. So I had uh you know, I just really I just really had a very, very uh and I don't I'm not even sure exactly why it's like very interesting to me that they were it was almost like this dead religion that I like cuz you know in the 60s obviously they it was like the religion of the entire world with Beatles right. but by the time I was getting into them they'd been broken up for a few years and it was almost like kind of an afterthought I think for a lot of people like they were still almost just like oh yeah that popped in from the 60s or something but it was uh it was like kind of I tapped into that and I couldn't you know i mean they were they had a huge impact on me for some reason um,
0: that and, question uh, was uh mainly to settle a bet with myself that you were going to say george harrison
1: i really well you win you win <laughs> my friend <laughs> yeah
0: it that's like um, one of the one of the common things i've noticed with interviews with you is that you tend to bring up the beatles yeah and then uh, and then i heard the brief Weed stuff and i was like oh uh, yeah I was like, all right, this is a vein that runs very deep.
1: I feel like the brief weed is probably the band that is the closest. I mean, I think most people would not think that, but to me, it's like the closest expression of like some something like real and with me. Really? Like, oh yeah. I mean, it's like it's obviously not. You know, I mean, it was like a band that was we were fooling around or whatever. But there's something, there's something like almost. uh, I mean. It's funny and everything, but there's something, there's some kind of, there's something being explored there that I don't know what the fuck it is, but it feels really real to me. <laughs> I don't know why. But really pop music.
0: Pure sixties pop.
1: That was. It was perverse. The band is really perverse. I mean, the thing that was cool about the Brief Weeds is like we had this. Like the idea was that there was only like a few topics for songs, and one was like. Coasts. The other was like magic, and then there was something like your girlfriend's father was a big topic that we had a bunch of talks about, Uh um, um, and it was basically the same band as One Last Wish, you know, and we would be Mm -hmm. recording, uh, we just recorded on a little cassette four track and, um, and boom boxes where we would like kind of bounce the tape back and forth, but it was, it was, um, it was incredibly, uh, that was what was interesting about bands for us back then, is like we always had this band that was ostensibly the real band that we were in. Right. But we were recording and making music every minute of the day. And the amount of bands, I mean, not just Brief Weeds, but there was like... We had we had so many groups like that um, that made tapes. Uh, one of them, you know, Black Light Panthers, I put out a record of. Mm-hmm. That was Brendan and I's group that we did when we first met. The very first day he came over to my house, we, we made a 90-minute tape. Um, and just that that kind of activity was going on all the time. So Brief Weeds is just, like, one that actually got released, but there's so much more of that shit. I mean, we just were recording constantly, like, in different formations. And, and in, a, in a weird way, it was almost a way to teach each other how to play together or teach each other how to be in a band outside of the structures of whatever real groups that we were in that were doing, you know,
0: I mean, there's just
1: thought of it as being more serious in some way, but, um,
0: there's just no way that couldn't have helped the, your quote unquote real band too. Yeah. Like just making a sound, like creating a sound that's unique and just like, just tightly played.
1: Yeah. And you know, I mean, for me, it was funny because I i never, I think it took me a really long time to feel like I could actually even play the guitar. I mean, I think it wasn't until like deep into Fugazi that I started to feel like, okay, I sort of have some idea what I'm doing. Like It took me a really, really long time to kind of figure out, develop some confidence around my playing, mainly because most of my friends were, had been playing a little bit longer than me. I mean, I had friends like Brian Baker Mike Hampton. I mean, those guys were just incredible guitar players from a very young age. Yeah. And I always felt kind of like, you know, the, you know, subgrade underneath, like watching them and trying to pick up shit from, from their styles of playing and, um, try to understand how to actually play the guitar. Like I just, you know, I, I never had, I never had like some kind of prodigy kind of vibe with the guitar. It's always a struggle for me. So I think it took me a long time to figure out how to do it. But at the same time, I was making songs from all the time, and trying to you know trying to get there or whatever, and so a lot of that, just that kind of yeah. I mean, to me, like being in a band was more important than being a musician. I didn't really care that much about being a
0: musician, Definitely. but I cared
1: deeply about being in a band. You know, I wanted to have a, I don't know that camaraderie and that kind of shared uh, creative thing has always been really like
0: collective know, that's, voice. That's
1: what I like. Yeah, the collective voice, the collective sound of a of individual personalities creating something i mean that's why the beatles i think are so important to me it's like that's they are the template for that for the like the idea of four very distinct or you know whatever amount of people but four for their in their case four distinct creative personalities fusing and creating this alternate thing that's so mammoth and i just i just love that idea i love the idea of sharing ideas and working together and you know like, Right to Spring really felt like that. That group of four people, to me, was, like, that was, like, the, the dream for me. It was, like, oh, man, we're all contributing, we're all writing, we're all, like, hanging together. It's, like, we're, like, just living in each other's pockets and just, you know, doing this thing. To me, I was, like, oh, this is it. I found it. Yeah.
0: Um, all right, let's play some uh, Punk Rock Jeopardy. Uh, this is...
1: You know, I've actually tried to get on Jeopardy a few times.
0: Really? Did you come out to LA and take the test, or they do it out there?
1: No, I've, t- I've done the online test.
0: And okay.
1: I, you know, cause I always, I always feel like I could, I could do it, but then for some reason, I guess I'm not, my test scores must not be so good. <laughs> but I, I, uh, I've known a few people who've been on the show, um, that I met while I was on tour. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'm a, I'm a fan of the show.
0: All right. So you know the rules, and we're rooting for you here. Okay. Uh, so the topic is most in punk rock, and this is the thousand dollar option. Wait, what's the topic again? Most in punk rock. Yeah, most in punk rock. Okay. Many would claim this title belongs to Roger Murray of New York hardcore pioneers Agnostic Front, but Daryl Gussin of Razorcake magazine says it's D.C. emo punker Guy Picciotto.
1: Got me stumped, man. I can't. I can't even press my buzzer on that one.
0: Uh, the most mispronounced name in punk rock.
1: Wow. What is his name? What is his name?
0: Uh, agnostic Front guy. Roger Murray. It's like Rogério Murray.
1: Ah. No, there's no question. I get the title on that. There's just there's absolutely no way I don't win that. I've
0: heard your name pronounced many different ways.
1: I hear it pronounced in many different ways every single day of my life. I mean, it's one of the biggest, I got to say, I, if I could have talked to my parents out of it, I would have done so. Cause it's like, it's a double whammy. It's just like endlessly, uh, it's an endless pain in the ass. It's like, uh, uh, but it's key pachoto. That's how you say it. Um, but it's, yep. yeah, it's, it's been a burden. I'll tell you.
0: I wrote it out phonetically on this piece of paper just so I wouldn't fuck it up.
1: Yeah, appreciate it.
0: <laughs> but, I mean, I've also I've mispronounced my last name in the past, so can okay.
1: It's hard because, like, a lot of times when I think I'm not gonna, you know, when it's I'm dealing with, you know, uh, bills or some shit, I don't give my real, I don't pronounce my name correctly because it's not worth the hassle. But it's <laughs> often come back to bite me in the ass, you know. It's like someone would be like has been calling me guy for like you know 13 months and then they finally hear my name correctly and they're like why the fuck didn't you tell me and i'm like oh fuck. You know, i didn't actually think this relationship would extend <laughs> this long so it's like one of those things where it's just like i have to decide whether it's worth the fucking time to try to explain how to pronounce it because it's like you say yeah my name's gee and they're like ski no no it's gee keith no it's you know it's like for some reason it's Maybe it's also because I mumble or I have a bad alliteration, but no one can seem to understand what I'm saying when I try to explain what the name is.
0: Well, we're settling the record right here, right now. Right. All right, this next question is from uh, Liverpool Will. Okay. All right, so he goes, You've largely been out of the public eye since Fugazi went on hiatus. So was it a surprise when you got picked up by the music press after appearing on the jumbotron at the basketball game? Does that sort of thing feel incongruous with the level of recognition you had in Fugazi? Uh,
1: that was weird, um, for sure. I mean, it's—I don't know. This thing is—it's strange. Like people, I think. Um, I mean, it's not like I—it's not like I ever stopped working or doing music in the years since. You know, I, I've actually done. I've actually been working the whole time, but I, I really? just—it's uh, I you know—I don't. It's hard to—it's—it it, is. It, I mean, that thing with the jumbotron. I mean, those things are just kind of just feel odd, and I don't really know how to what to think about them. Um, it was amusing, I guess, in a way, but it was also <laughs> kind of like, yeah, it's weird because I think people feel like they don't—they just, you know, that I've fallen off the face of the earth, and then some kind of humorous appearance but I mean I feel like I have uh you know I worked with Vic Chesnut for many years and I toured with him and I made records with him uh before he passed away and for me like the way I feel about it that's as important as anything I've ever done easily Mm -hmm. it was a, a relationship that was um huge for me and to play with him and all the people that were in that group I met you know the a lot of musicians from Montreal who played with Vic on that in that lineup and um People from Silver Mount Zion and Godspeed You Black Emperor. And, uh, you know, we had all kinds of different people in that very large group that was backing Vic. And we made two records that I'm really, really proud of. And I feel like I learned a lot about playing guitar and being in a group. And uh, learned a lot about songwriting from Vic, who I think is one of the great geniuses of American music. That is, you know, as much as he's known, I feel like he's still an untapped resource for so many people because he had such a huge output that I don't even think people understand how much music is out there. I'm still discovering stuff that he did that is that I didn't even know about. Um, and uh, and he's someone that I met when Fugazi first played Athens, Georgia. I've known him since before he put out his first record, and he's always just been a really important person to me. Um, so that, that feels a little bit like something I, I feel like people... To check out, and I think is really important. But also, I've done, you know, and I've been playing music with friends and um, recording stuff. If some stuff comes out, some projects happen, some projects don't. I, I produce a lot of groups. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in it. I, I still, I still, you know, I'm still
0: motivated and
1: uh the through line in my life is, is is helping people make music and making music myself and just doing that and I'm not I don't know. So I don't I don't I don't know. I, I it's not of any incidence to me at all. I, I don't I how people think about that or what they <laughs> what they think I'm doing or what they you know, I just don't I'm just I'm just plugging away. You know, and it's similar to like, you know, I was for Fugazi I was in six groups you know I just and some of them people know about and some of them people don't it's like it's any musician is 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 working and some of the work crosses some kind of threshold of awareness with people and some yeah. of the work doesn't but that doesn't it's I think if you're if music is part of your life then it it's it, the anomaly is is when it crosses the threshold, and that's not <laughs> that's not actually the life, you know. And that's not the, you know, it's amazing for that Fugazi became kind of a, a known entity or whatever. But for us, it was a, it was really about the work and just continuing to find some way to to do the work within a framework that made sense to us, and that was that was what that was. And that's kind of the same way my life is now.
0: Are we? Is the world ever going to be able to hear? Uh project you did with Barker and Comet Bus I don't know about that project I don't think that project exists okay I got some what is that (laughs) I don't know got some bad intel yeah the person who told it to me said "Uh, they only had demos recorded and I listened they got played for me when I was on acid so I can't even tell you anything about them
1: Aaron Comet Bus and who Barker G Barker G who is who is
0: that? Uh, he he's a he's no longer with us, but he was a, a, a very talented guitarist who played in a bunch of punk bands. Like which ones? A band called Ringers and uh, Witches with Dicks.
1: I think he's confusing me with um, the dude from Jawbreaker.
0: Oh wow! I'm
1: I'm pretty think- I'm pretty sure that's what happened because I know that he played with Aaron. Um,
0: that is sloppy uh, at some point
1: but that is sloppy but I think that's what that is I mean other, otherwise I don't know what to say but I know Aaron um, when we're friends but I've never made music with any anyone any of those guys no uh, but I'm pretty sure I, that must be what it is there's some kind of like uh, emo confusion <laughs> <there>. <laughs>
0: classic emo confusion yeah um, did you travel with Kathy for the Bikini Kill reunions
1: I did do I did go to as many of the shows as I could yeah I didn't go to all of them, but I did go to, I I did go to one in California and I saw all the ones out here in New York.
0: This is also, uh, Liverpool Will asks, does it feel like the right time for Bikini Kill in a way that it might not necessarily be for Fugazi?
1: Um, it's just very different situations. I, I think, uh, um. So yeah, I mean the bands are different and the reasons for them playing together are different. And I mean, Fugazi, like we've always maintained, is not really a band that broke up per se. I mean, we 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 um, but we don't we don't plan or intend to do work on that scale unless there was some you know I, I can't even explain what fundamental shift would have to happen in right. order to allow that. But it's like the way the band worked was was a full life priority for us yeah um we you know at, at our way of working was to try to tour you know half the year and work on music all the time and rehearse the, 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 that manner of functioning is not something we can do now and the idea of doing some kind of uh diluted version of that um doesn't make sense. It also doesn't make sense just in terms of where our lives are at this point. I don't live in the same city as those guys and they're all playing together in various combinations and those projects are all super important and everybody has found a place for them to work. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're, we're, uh, it's, I think, you know, it's hard to explain how tight we are as friends and how tight the band is as a unit and how much we're still in contact with each other and how often, you know, before this pandemic, hit, I always tried to make sure that I was down in D.C. a few times a year and get together and hang out and do some stuff together and just fuck around. And um, that's probably always going to be the case. But in terms of like doing some kind of I, the idea of doing like a reunion tour or something like that, that's not something that's is in our. It's not something we discuss or think about. It's just not on the. It's not on the menu.
0: I mean, it must seem so physically winning. taxing too.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I can't even, I don't don't even really think about it. I mean, I, I, I will say this, like the physical aspects of being in that band is something I miss. Like I, it's like a body memory thing. Like I'm sure, like, you know, I'm sure athletes have the same feeling (laughs) when you just have this, you remember the kind of, you know, physical commitment that it was and then the kind of elation of it or whatever the the sources of it and all that. Yeah. The rush of it. I mean, the adrenaline of it, all that. I mean, I, I'm, you know i i can't i would be lying if I said I didn't miss it entirely because I do it's like it was fucking incredible but um but no I don't worry about like you know could we you know <laughs> could we fucking pull it off i don't i don't know i don't we've always the one thing about our band we we our 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 ethic was we play as we are so if the band was to play together that you would what it would be was is what it is you know it, it totally. doesn't i'm not we wouldn't be aiming for anything but um i just don't i just don't see it being it's just not. It's just not not something that um, is, is you know, on the table at this point.
0: You know, I in uh, preparation for the this the
1: Bikini Kill thing. I'll say for them. Oh, I mean, it was you know, the the shows were fucking phenomenal. The ones that I saw and the band is is as important. You know, the the relevance of that group in this time is is massive, and it felt that way at the shows. The vibe, the energy, the kind of. Uh, the kind of uh, conduit of this rage that they were able to provide at those shows was like excellent, you know, and, and, and totally. And that's why, you know, it's like, I'm not critical of bands, you know, you know, playing and, 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 you know, finding ways to work together again after many years, I don't give a fuck. There's no ethic about whether things are justified or not justified. I mean, certainly there's bands that, that, do things that seem craven or whatever. That's like, there is a dimension of that sometimes, but, yeah. um, but that's not the way I felt about this. I mean, to me, that w- it was, it, there was so much, there were so many reasons, in, you know, for them to come back and to do what they did. And in a lot of ways for them to have a better experience, um, as a group than they were able to have maybe when they were first together, like they you know, they have different, you know, different perspective on 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 what they were doing and, and just like
0: a less now. combative a audience
1: yeah i don't know it's funny because i mean the, the, the thing about the confrontation it shows back back in the day it's like it's hard for people i think who weren't there who didn't experience what some of the fucking i mean through the 80s and early 90s like the kind of the 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 it was just a very different time. I mean, and the the kind of confrontational energy that would be happening at shows was like really, really intense. I mean, people think now, you know, there's a lot of this, um, just terrifying kind of white supremacist shit that's happening across the country right now, but it's not new. Right. And that, and that, that, those energies were certainly fucking a part of the, the punk culture of, Back in the day, too, and just like those, you know, that that kind of shit, was kind of that kind of uh, that kind of shit was happening at those shows back then. And there was a lot the confrontation and the, the the kind of situations bands would have to put themselves in to confront shit was it was intense. So yeah, I mean, anyway.
0: Uh, no, I went to one of the Bikini Kill shows in L.A. and it was just an amazingly fun time just felt really Great. special. yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so in preparation for this interview, I watched the documentary Salad Days, mm-hmm. and I feel like there was something missing from it. Hmm. Because I was preparing for this interview, and you weren't in it.
1: Oh, I see. I'm not in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, I didn't. I didn't do. I, they asked me to be in it, and uh, I just at that point. I think at the time when they were asking me, I was just not. I'm not particularly comfortable doing videos on camera for just my own kind of. I don't. I just. I, I. I don't do it very often, and I find it makes me extremely uncomfortable. And mm. I just. Uh, at that time, I just didn't feel like I was able to do it sometimes the historicization of things, like I just don't know how to, I, I feel like I don't trust my uh, perspective sometimes and I don't, don't. I just, I, you know, I get antsy about getting locked into something and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, not that, you know, I'm, I'm glad for all the archiving and the historicization that's happened and certainly it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm obviously, there's another movie that came out, Punk the Capital, which if you get a chance to see it is also, it kind of deals with an earlier, uh era in d c music more of the kind of early nineteen seventy nine the kind of early bad brains um some of the earlier stuff before before eighty five or whatever kind of more of the seventy eight eighty five era okay. and it's you know it's it's got got unbelievable really really unbelievable footage in it and some stuff of that scene and for me it was you know extremely powerful and sala i mean all that stuff is is was really cool, but I just for whatever personal reason, I just didn't feel like I could, do, I could do it. So I don't know. I mean, I, I feel, um, Brendan was in it. I mean, I think we were represented as I guess <laughs> I, I haven't seen it in a while, but,
0: um, it's funny because, uh, um, just like rock docs or whatever, especially punk docs. I just felt mm-hmm. several years ago, I just got so burnt out on them because I feel like they all kind of followed like a similar format. But I think it's, uh, because of the pandemic, not being able to go to shows or, you know, even yeah. uh, have band practice. I'm just like, I find myself watching them when, like, last year, I wouldn't even think about putting it on.
1: I find that, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that there's a certain kind of... I feel like there should be more formal experimentation in those kind of movies That so, in order to better mimic the experience as opposed to, like, these talking heads-type... Thing where it's just like you know interviewing someone in a well lit room about something that happened a while ago, I feel like there is this kind of almost like there's a cookie cutter template that's out there i'm not i 'm not speaking speaking specifically about any movie in general i don't want to, like i'm not trying to test versions of any films i 'm just saying that I do think that there's there's way to explore making films i mean i 've done a lot of work in movie stuff, and I just feel like there's a, uh I think there's a lot of room to explore different ways to tell these stories and different you know and a lot of times I think it's really good to let the kind of material particularly archival material speak for itself in a way. Like I feel like that can be much more powerful. Um but but so yeah, I don't know. I don't I I, I kinda of go back and forth. Like sometimes I just don't do interviews for a really long period of time. I'm not even sure exactly why I said yes to doing this one, but <laughs> it's just like sometimes if you catch me at the right moment I might be like, Oh, I sort of feel like Reflective, but a lot of times I just—I'm not really interested in doing them because I just—I—I—I uh, I, I, I end up having a, a hard time with getting my thoughts together. I guess.
0: All right, this next question might require some 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 thinking, and I'm mainly just trying to figure it out for myself. So maybe you can help me. Uh, at this point, we have grown adults who have based their entire lives around these sanctified recordings of teenagers yelling their thoughts and feelings. Uh, do you think this exemplifies the arrested development of the average punk person, or is it a righteous act against ageism?
1: I don't think it's either one. Um, I guess what I would say is like... um it just depends on what your premise is. Like if your premise is that music created by young people or music created by people of any age is a value and that different people have this objective kind of takes on what is a value to them, then it doesn't, the question is kind of meaningless. You know, it's like, I think that you, I personally think that, um, Say like the faith void record mm-hmm. it's a work of art to me, but to someone else, it might be just exactly that, just like what is this weird clatter of of shrieking noise that is being you know mythologized beyond all proportion to what it actually is so i don't I don't think either one of those takes is is incorrect necessarily. I just don't happen to agree with the second one, and I agree with the first one. You know, the record has great meaning to me, huge meaning. And, Wait, you agree with and, the uh,
0: the righteous act against ageism?
1: But I don't know. But who's what's the ageist perspective? Is the perspective is, is it being ageist against people having affection for 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 art that they value? That doesn't seem ageist to me. But might unless it's ageist in the sense that do people think that? young people's art has no value I mean, yeah I guess that's, that's ages right that's but the that, that, that i certainly don't think because i think that i mean that's a, i guess my perspective is that some of the music that was created by i think that's one of the fundamental if you're going to take like what is fundamentally interesting about hardcore in a way and there's plenty of things about hardcore that are to be critiqued hugely. And I mean, and I and I, 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 you know, there was there's misogyny, there's like all kinds of stuff, violence, stuff threaded through the entire history of hardcore that needs to be examined and, um, and is 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 justifiably critiqued, I think. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what's really I think positive and amazing about hardcore is I can't think of another kind of art movement of any kind that was spearheaded by people so young. I mean, and which it gives it a special kind of valence. You know, it just does. Um, to have, you know, I, you know, you can look at it, and and a lot of it is kind of amazing. You read the lyrics, and you think like, what is a fifteen-year-old like? What is this? You look at some of the themes and some of the obsessions. If you look at it literally, it can seem. Strange or whatever, but I think there's so much more information that's being transmitted from the energy of it and the psychology of it and the impact of it that doesn't that isn't really reducible to some kind of you know just like I don't know. So for some people, it obviously would just it, it's not understandable; it doesn't make any sense. But for some people, it it, it has you know it, you can you can build a world within anything. You know, you can build a world literally with any work of art, and it just depends on how it how it affects you and what you see in it. And that, I don't know, that to me is like, that's wonderful. I think that's just wonderful. doesn't mean that we all have to agree on it or agree on what those, and I do think that it's important to kind of, you know, expand the franchise, expand the vision a little bit, open up the mythology to more voices and things and ideas. And sometimes things get elevated that maybe don't deserve their that elevation. All that. It's all part of the fucking conversation, but but so I don't know. I just think that the the premise of the question is like more I don't know. I think there's a there's something in the middle there that seems more accurate to me.
0: It's a little yeah, a little blend of the two. Yeah. Um how do you think 80s hardcore would have been different if people talked about mental health in the same way they do now?
1: Wow. Um, well, what are your thoughts on that? I say
0: something. Well, I mean, I mean, I wasn't there. Yeah. Um. But I mean, I just noticing the the increased vocabulary of people being able to uh, articulate their mental health in the last several years. Like, it's definitely changed my friend, like my immediate friend group. And I'm just wondering, like. Is is like such an extreme form of art, like 80s hardcore, the reaction of people who are really just like suffering and fi- finally finding a way to like alleviate how they're feeling? And just like if there was a like a language at that time, would it have had an impact on like these records that we all really love?
1: Wow, I really don't know. Um, I mean, I I think it's safe to say you don't have a whole lot of people coming into the hardcore scene at that time who weren't coming from situations that were pretty painful. I mean, almost across the board, Mm -hmm. I think that most of the people who gravitated toward it were, uh, um, not everybody, but everybody, but I would say, you know, (laughs) The great majority of kids who ended up there, there was there were reasons for them to be there that were probably not like you know we're, were joining uh, you know a, uh, a crafts workshop youth, youth group you know <laughs> it was not like it wasn't it wasn't always coming from a positive place So I think a lot of people were coming out of you know fairly extreme situations for a, a lot of people and, and situations that probably were not uh, particularly rare. Um, considering how many people were involved I mean I do think that there was a lot of and and there continues to be you know there's a lot of uh really hard situations um so I don't know I don't know if there, if that would have helped or not I mean I I, 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 I don't know if having a, a better language or understanding of these things necessarily leads to always to better outcomes I don't, I don't really know um, but I also don't think that the the primary experience of hardcore at that time was one of like you know uh, there was a lot of joy there was a lot of camaraderie there was a lot of like uh, creativity a lot of like um, super positive shit that right. came out of of uh, out of it so uh, in a way I don't know I mean I think that there was a I mean it's funny it's like I think a lot about it it's like you know there they you know. The kids who were growing up at that time were like tea bags within the larger culture. So you're like absorbing the water that is the larger culture and you're, you can't really escape from it. So a lot of the things that were negative, I think, about that music and that scene at that time, a lot of it was just endemic to being an American kid of that moment. You know, it was just like, and a lot of it had to do with, I think hardcore and punk in general was almost like a re-education camp that you were inflicting on yourself to try to get out of that and get to a better, Plateau, you know, and they, and I think the DC scene in particular did a lot of kind of rigorous self-examination, almost like in a Maoist way, like to try to fucking change, you know, right. to find, you know, Self-print. you have this enormous kind of these, you know, people trying to fucking find something, find a better plateau, and I think that was part of what that, you know, the narrative or the struggle of that scene was. Um. But yeah, the mental health stuff—I, you know, I don't know how to speak to that really. I don't know. I think it was—it's uh, a really interesting question, but I, I'm not sure I have an answer for
0: it. All right, I was wondering if, uh... all right, so Fugazi had its own template per se, and mm-hmm. you operated in a pretty revolutionary way. And I was wondering if there was ever any awkward interactions with other big punk bands of the time, like I don't even like were you ever in the same room as like a band like Rancid or the Ramones, who were just kind of like looking at you baffled by what you were doing?
1: Actually, kind of the opposite, to be honest. Uh, I, the Ramones, Let's. I'll start with the Ramones. The Ramones were hugely important to me. Yeah. I saw them for the first time um, before I knew any of the other kind of punks in the scene. I mean, when I was really young, I had kind of a couple of friends from school who were in the same music as I I was, but I didn't know, I wasn't, I was too young to be connected to a lot of the other people in Washington, so I was going to see Patti Smith and The Clash and The Ramones and The Cramps and seeing bands kind of on my own, you know, with my couple of my friends, but we just, we weren't, we didn't know anybody, we didn't, there was no way for us to be connected to anything larger, we were really young, I mean, I think I was like 12 and a half, 13. Um, you know, I saw the cramps in the street and talked to them and these kind of moments. And I met the Ramones when they, did, you know, they showed Rock and Roll High School at this theater and they came down for, for it and they were in the lobby. And I remember just walking up to the Ramones and I was like, I don't know, I don't think I was, I might've been 13, just turned 13 or something. And I'm like, wow, where do you, you know, where do you get leather jackets? And they're like, trash and vaudeville and I didn't even know what those words meant. Trash and vaudeville? I just thought they were <laughs> saying, like, it just sounded like gobbledygook to me. I had no idea what the fuck that could possibly mean. I was like, God, they're not, they don't even, you know, I thought it was just, you know, jive talking or something. I didn't know what right. the fucking meant. And they signed, you know, my coat or whatever. And I just remember being just mesmerized. And the energy of the Ramones is the energy of hardcore. If you saw Ramones at that time, the pace of their playing, if you listen to It's Alive, any of that fucking era of the Ramones, like the Tommy drum era, I mean, it's the energy of hardcore, it was like fucking, they were unbelievable, so to me, they don't represent anything but excellence, I don't have any kind of negative critique of the Ramones, I just For think sure. of them as being just unbelievable, so we were, you know, shocked when many, many years later, they played at University of Maryland, and like Joey was a knew about our group and they had this bassist CJ who was a fan of our band or whatever and they invited us to come to the show and we hung out with them afterwards and I just was dumbfounded, you know, I just was like, to me, they just, uh... and it's all, you know, it's like they, they were, I mean, you know, we've lost them all. It's like intense yeah. casualties but what they gave us was massive so I, it's nothing, you'll never hear me say anything negative about the Ramones and, and I don't, I didn't feel like Fugazi is in conflict with them in any way. Um, rancid, I'll say, like, we played with Op Ivy, um, one of, you know, one, one time they were touring across the country in a fucking car, right. giving, giving each other tattoos off the of cigarette lighter, and nice. I just was like, these fucking guys are great, you know, yeah. Operation Ivy we had all this energy and they were fucking amazing, so I have nothing negative to say about those dudes either, I just feel like they came out of hardcore, same as us, and whatever modality they ended up Doing with their thing is, is their thing, you know. I don't, I don't feel critical of them, and I don't feel in conflict with them. Um, I, there's, you know, there's certainly bands over over the years that have had, I think, mis- misunderstandings or misperceptions about what we stood for, and maybe felt more challenged or judged by what we were doing than I think we ever intended. I don't. We, did, for the most part, we don't give a fuck what other people do. I could give a fuck. Right. It has no no bearing on what what we're doing. And that's our, the message of the group is find your road and make your road. And and that's that. You know, we're not about we weren't trying to create like a code book for the fucking scene. You know, we were about trying to find a way for ourselves to work and to do the the thing the way we thought it should be done. But we don't sit on some fucking, you know, throne of judgment on high. I mean, it's like just it's just a complete misperception. So, no, I mean, we have a lot of respect for what other bands were doing and. Um, sometimes bands made mistakes and did horrible stupid things and that's on them you know but we weren't like I don't know so I feel uh, you know just to use your two examples I feel nothing but kind of uh, you know these are fellow travelers doing their thing you know that's it
0: yeah the, the two bands I picked I mean they're both bands that I consider myself a fan of and I was just trying to envision just like the two Fugazi and Rancid being in the same room and what that would have been like?
1: It would have been us talking to Tim and those guys and just checking in. I mean, really, that's what it would be. It would be like any fucking bands, and there. there would be no. Uh, there's no beef, you know. <laughs> Why would they, I don't? There's no. I don't know. I don't. I guess I don't know. Maybe I don't really understand what maybe people think Rancid represents. I know what people think we represent, <laughs> but I don't. I don't. I don't know what it doesn't. I don't know. I just, I think about them as being those dudes from Up Ivy who I fucking love. That's my take, you know, and that's just, that's, I know, I know that the scene they came out of, and I know, uh, so I don't, you know, there may be a cartoon perspective on them, but I just don't have it, because that's not, I don't know that much about it, and I just, all I know is my own experience of them as people, and that's it.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's as real as you get. Uh, was there ever a time when you were in Fugazi playing this expansive, experimental, genre blurring music and you thought, man, I wish I was back in Insurrection playing D beat again?
1: <laughs> so glad you mentioned Insurrection. Wow, that's, um, uh, it's really funny, you know, because I was, <laughs> it's really funny you should mention this because I, I, I was, um, I was thinking about Insurrection a lot yesterday, wow. um, and it's funny because it, what's funny about Insurrection is the band that preceded Insurrection was Deadline, and that's the band that Brendan, the drummer, right. came out of, and the singer for Insurrection was the bass player in Deadline. And Deadline, you know, I put out their the demo that they recorded in 1982 that never came out, and it should have been a Discord. Uh, 7 inch. I really should have, but they didn't have the money at the time to put it out, so it just got neglected. It's an incredible record. It's one of the great lost DC, I mean, it's not lost in the sense that I put it out, but I, you know, it came out on Peterborough Records, a thousand copies, not that many, but it's, I think, you know, I just thought they were fucking the shit. I thought, and I think the record really holds up. The vocals are incredible. The songs are really, really catchy and good, and, um, me and Mike Fellows were doing, you know, backup vocals on it, so I have this kind of feeling of slight participation in it, and we just, you know, we're the DOD guys and Deadline, that was our thing, and that's what kind of gave birth to all the groups that followed that I was in. Um, but Insurrection was like a weird step back. It was like the excellence of Deadline was like up here, and then Insurrection was almost like this retrograde move where Terry shifted to singing and Brennan was still drumming, but me and Mike joined, and I think it's mostly on me because I really didn't know how to play guitar that well. And, you know, for about a year, Mike and I had just been basically bum-rushing shows. Like, we would show up at a party and just grab instruments and start playing. And, like, Deadline would play. And then we'd jump up on stage and, like, just do this kind of anarchic single-chord noise rave-ups until we got kicked off the stage. And we kind of did that in New York. And we did it at a bunch of places where... So it was almost like I didn't have a concept for what even being in a band was. I, for me it just was like I wanted to jump up on stage, make some insane noise and jump around like a lunatic and I thought that was enough. Like I didn't have a perspective of like I could be in a band that had something to say or actually made made a song. It was really just about like jumping up and making like, you know, improvisational noise and screaming yeah. it's
0: and you know, pure not really energy.
1: doing anything. Yeah, and then so Insurrection slowly developed into a band and we auditioned Nathan from the Teen Idols to be our singer and if he had done it, maybe that would have changed the vibe of the band a little bit But we knew he liked discharge because he had a giant discharge button on his shirt So we were like and we you know, we loved the Teen Idols and we thought oh shit if we could get Nathan to do it So we went to his house and his parents house and we auditioned for him and played our few songs or whatever and he said no (laughs) <laughs> and then the band kind of, you know, limped along for a while longer. Then we got Terry and then he sang and we played, we actually played quite a few shows and we recorded a, a record um, that we never finished really for Discord and it never came out and it was never finished. But um, but the band was like kind of a step down in terms of the musicianship wasn't anywhere near as good as deadlines and I don't. But it, there was something happening at the end of that group where you just was starting to get more... Something was better was happening, <laughs> you know. But like we were listening to Rudimentary Peni and, and we were listening to Discharged and Motorhead and Venom, and it was that whole strain of music was like kind of what we were trying to be in or whatever. Yeah. And Rudimentary Peni really helped because Rudimentary Peni put this like twist on everything. I remember we would listen to Crazy Chain on the first Rudimentary Peni seven inch and just those songs and just feeling like okay just a little like and void too like just some sure. bands that had this kind of like extra level of
0: visceral like
1: mayhem yeah something so visceral so it was like i think i was trying to play something more codified when i really should have been trying to play something way more uncodified you know and that was kind of maybe where interaction could have headed and could have been developed into a better band before but we you know we fell apart before that happened but um no, and it's, I don't think I've ever looked back and been like, "Oh, but there was something about that band that was kind of awesome because even though we probably weren't any good, we were like we were no one who you know at the time we were known as a thing because we were just so tight and we would come to shows and we had our own way of dancing and our own way of dressing and our own fucking vibe, you know so how we, would like, you, it how had would you a, describe this way of it dancing had an impact yeah we had a way of dancing like we would pull our jackets over our heads and zip them up so that we were like completely covered and we would do these like moves and shit, and it was you know we were you know we were fucking like you know, high you know high energy we were so young and it had so much adrenaline and we had all these rituals and shit that we would do and things that were just like kind of like our own internal like any just like young fucking people you, know, you just create yeah free you just create these like combustible fucking rituals in your little group and what are so we're the, all about that. Like what are the
0: rules for assemble the pentangle?
1: Wow. Um I don't think I'm allowed to discuss how, how that worked. We had two there was two things, Assemble the Pentangle and Hell on Earth and those they're kind of separate uh, where did you hear where did you hear about that? Uh,
0: the touch and go interview with Insurrection. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I can't really do, kind of divulge that, but that was something that used to happen. We we used to do that.
0: Is that one of the rituals you were referring to, though? Yes. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. So yeah, we had we had stuff like that. We used to wear a lot of cologne.
0: <laughs> what um, was what your scent? Chaps. Chaps.
1: Yeah, that was our like Ralph Lauren chaps, and then we would play. Um, but yeah, but, so no, I don't know. I, but I do have a lot of affection for that period. I wish we'd been better, you know, I would kind of wish like the band had been excellent. Like it's kind of, um, I feel like deadline had been kind of a high watermark and I wish that record had come out and I feel like we kind of, but it, but it was good in a way because it kind of was like an ability to kind of learn. I think for me, the hardest part was trying to learn how to control the adrenaline and still play and do something that was, uh, Like, coherent, you know, I don't think I, it took me a while to fucking figure out how to marshal it, you know, I just did not know how to do it. And at least, you know, we, you know, in insurrection, we went to Detroit, we played with negative approach there. We, like, we actually played out. We were, we were, um, still in high school. But I remember I like, you know, my parents were asleep and I kind of opened the door in the darkness and I said hey, I'm taking the car. I'm driving up to Detroit to play a show with my friends. And then I just shut the door and I took the keys and we drove up to Detroit to play this gig. And we were gone for like three days. My parents, you know, in, in retrospect, it's amazing. My parents didn't just call the police. Like, I don't know what the fuck, how, but that's the way it was then. There was a certain level of massive neglect happening that was so beneficial to me, you know, like just to be able to live a life you know, while I was still living in my parents' house, but just had this completely alternate life happening that was under no scrutiny at all. So you chopped that up to
0: neglect and not like a, just like a sense of trust?
1: Oh, no, there was no trust. No, absolutely not. (laughs) Not that. No, I wouldn't call it some kind of benign parenting philosophy. (laughs) It would not be what it was, because that's not what it was. Um, But, um but it was great, you know it for me ultimately it was great because it gave me you know an opportunity to fucking find find you know the world you know I was able to you know it was incredible like those you know those trips like that trip in particular, like to go out and play in another city um that's the first time I ever did it, and I don't think I was you know I may have been sixteen sixteen and a half I was fucking super young and um all of that helped feed into the bands that was to come. You know, we were able to, like, get a foothold. And then after that, you know, band broke up, like, you know, we all splintered off and started doing different things. And then eventually Eddie, Janney started hanging out with us, which was, you know, the Mm -hmm. equivalent of the greatest guitar player in the, as far as I was concerned in this punk scene there. Like, you know, just fucking falling in with us and, and becoming just, you know... A part of our hang and our part of our ritual and then and that led to you know right to spring which took a long time to happen I mean we were writing and recording year either easily a year or a year and a half before we actually ended up playing gigs and making a record but we were you know, like you know we were in the process that whole time like learning together and putting it together and, and, and then it Once that happened then we started playing and then after that, all the groups that followed just one after the other, I mean, it was psycho. Like I think now, like I must've written, you know, you know, one band would break up and then you'd form another band and write 30 songs and that band break up. And then next, within a month or less, you were in another band. That, you know, it was crazy. It just like before Fugazi, it just was like this fucking onslaught of groups and all these side things and just so much work. And then what's funny is I think right before Fugazi started, I just was like, I think that's it. You know, I, I just thought it was all over. I thought it was completely done, and there was nothing. I sold my amp. I sold. I just left town, and that was it. And, right. and it's just a miracle that Fugazi happened. It's like I just my mindset at the time was like that of a fucking seventy five year old man. You know, I just was like, well, I'm ready to kick my fucking legs up because this is over. But
0: it wasn't over. You've touched on this a little bit, but. At- I'm still kind of curious about uh, further details. Uh, so you you say that you still make music every day. Mm-hmm. Can you give the people just like a small An idea of what that is? Yeah.
1: Well, all right. Let's say after Fugazi stops, I started playing music with Eddie Janney again,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we practiced. We practiced for I don't know. We worked together for like five years or something, and we had. Uh, some guys from the band Antelope play with us for a while and we had a four piece going and we recorded and wrote music and I have, I don't know. I mean, it's an unbelievable amount of recorded material that we worked on, but we just didn't play out. We didn't, you know, we didn't finalize anything. We just, it was more like, um, uh, but that was a very dedicated practice. I mean, before I moved away from DC, I was doing that, you know, three, two, three rehearsals a week. Uh, I had a, a space, and we worked in, on music together, and, you know, hugely valuable to me. And, you know, Eddie, playing with Eddie is just, i you know, I, it's one of the great pleasures of my life. I love I love his, his sensibility. I love his playing. I love him as a human being. So that was, so that, for example, was something that was many years of work. Um, I, you know... I've had a lot of projects that just didn't go anywhere. I worked on a record with this, uh, singer, Mary Margaret O'Hara, up in Canada, and that didn't, uh, that was a session that didn't, um, become anything, but was also, again, really amazing for me to be able to work with a musician of that stature. It was unbelievable and, just, uh, in- incredible. And, um project that I do is i like Lewis White. We've put out four or five records now. I can't, I'm not sure, I can't remember. <laughs> I think it's four or five records. And, uh, that's a, one of the more intense musical collaborations I've ever been involved with, they come and work at my house and we record tons of material and then we assemble records and they've come out, you know, on Drag City and other music, a bunch of, they've been on a bunch of different labels, Belly Union. Um, and that's a relationship that I've, you know, worked with them in terms of helping arrange. And it's like being a member of the group without actually playing an instrument, but just like we work on the music all together in in, in my open studio which doesn't have a control room it's just like an open space and we're all in there together working on the stuff and that's uh, something I put a lot of energy into and I produced the downtown boys record I've been working with this band the casual dots which is my one of my wife's groups with Christina Bellat from splint six um, we've been working on this record for 15 years and we're trying to wow. get it finished this year um, so it's a record that I think is incredible and a band that I think is great uh, so that's project I'm working on with them um, yeah so you know it's just music working on music with people and some stuff is me playing and then, then there's also just the part where I'm just like writing songs and playing them and recording stuff myself but the thing about it for me is like I've, I'm a person who's been in bands and like for me like all the groups that I was in you know whatever the groups that I was in when I was younger in DC or whatever were the product of being part of a community or whatever and um i still feel like i am part of that community but i no longer live down there and the community itself is not it's not the same you know it's not the same world that it was right so in some ways it's hard for me like i i'm a contextual person like for me to think about being in a group the context the whole framework around it it has to I don't know what the element is that makes it happen for me, but I've struggled to make that, you know, I thought for sure that I would just be in a band again and it would just keep rolling the way it always had done always when Fugazi stopped. I was like, all right, well then, and that's kind of what I did. I started, you know, playing with Eddie and just doing stuff the way I've always done it. And I do that now, you know, like I've played, like I played with Vic and I played, uh work on these film music hybrids with my friend, Jim Cohen. Like I've done, you know, a lot of performances with that where, you know, We've made this movie called We Have an Anchor, and um, some of these other kind of film projects, like with short films and music, and I've played live doing that with him. Um, so that's another example of something I've done. Not that many, you know. It's like these are one-offs, so not that many people see them, and there's not a lot of continuity there. So maybe it doesn't seem like it exists, but for me, it's a lot of work. For sure. you know, I'm like putting a lot of a lot of effort into it, and I take it really seriously when I work on stuff like that. And you know, I'm you know, I've got just a you know being alive to to, to to contend with too so it's like i do all that shit i'm just a human being doing the stuff that i do it's weird i sometimes get a sense like do i need to find some way to justify my existence or something but it's like i just am living you know i'm trying to find i work on projects and i do things and whether they register with people or not i don't fucking know and i, I frankly don't i can't care that much because i just am i you know i feel i feel completely occupied and invested and and and, and well, so
0: that's good. That is good. That's, uh, I mean, that's probably the best you can hope for at this point.
1: Yeah, fuck yeah. I, don't, I mean, you know, it'd be awesome to fucking, you know, it's like I, I love being in bands and I hope it happens again, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not rushing out to, uh, you know, I, 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 I have a certain standard in my head that of, not of perfectionism, but just of like of, of, of facility for me to be able to work it's really hard I think that 's a lot of things people maybe don't understand about fugazi is like a lot of the stuff we did that might seem perverse or like trying to be doctrinaire stuff was really just in order to make it functioning so that we could actually do work like for me it 's not so easy. I need to like feel it's like all the shit has to be right, you know, and a lot of it has to do with the people around me, so it's like you know it's I'm dependent in terms of work on um on being uh comfortable yeah with people yeah. And with with it's, its it's not me you know i need I, I, I'm alone i'm nothing you know i'm not i'm nothing alone i need it's like i have to be invigorated and in work there has to be some I love that's what I like. That's what I care about. Um on my own, I don't who gives a fuck. I don't give a fuck. Hey you. Yes you. Anyone has the anyone has the
0: potential to be a Razork contributor. If you don't see or hear what you'd like covered, Linda's a helping hand. If you're knowledgeable about DIY Punk, are open to the the editing of your work, can meet deadlines, and follow instructions, we'll consider your contribution. Drop us a line at razorcake.org slash subscribe. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support what we do, please order a subscription to Razorcake Magazine at razorcake.org slash subscribe. Or make a donation during this donation drive, which goes on from mid-November to the uh, end of December. It's uh, happening right now, maybe depending on when you're listening to this. This podcast is supported by the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, the Los Angeles County Department of Arts and Culture. Any findings, opinions, or conclusions contained therein are not necessarily those of our a grantor.